This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. So um, the uh, translation uh, that you'll find in the CEB when it translates, the, you know, we, it's so interesting pulling words out of the Hebrew, but it translates that word brute as stupid, that we are stupid humans. Uh, and uh, that's always kind of, you know, who, who, who feels a bit of a blow to the ego when they're reading through the book, the good book that you hope will uplift you and you read about what a stupid human you are. I'm like, dang it, dang it again, darn it. But this is part of the truth of who we are, is that we struggle to understand. We struggle with foolishness, which is a nicer way of saying it, right? Or even brutishness, where we're not really bringing our higher abilities of reason and good into the world, but sort of foolishly just being reactive and angry or whatever other rascally foolishness it is that we get up to. So as we continue to move through the season of Lent, and that's the season that we're in right now, Easter is April 21st, so mark that on your calendar, and we're going to have a regular timed service on that day at 1030. So the weeks prior to April 21st this year give us the opportunity to dig a little deeper into who we are as a saved people. The story of Jesus Christ is the story of salvation. And salvation is one of those huge church words that I sort of mentioned earlier can be kind of heavy. But it basically means a people of well-being, a people of life, a people of health, a people of hope with deep gladness, a people who have chosen, remember you're not born Christian, you choose it, chosen rescue, chosen to focus on the good. So during Lent, we are called back to remember whose we are. We are challenged not just to see ourselves personally saved, but to see Jesus' act on the cross as one that benefits the whole community. God calls us to love each other fearlessly and learn to be in community together, true community, each of us counting on each other to help us learn and grow and understand God's love. So we start with a story today. Awesome. Yes. The story that is set in a wedding, um, in a wedding in the evening. And Jesus tells his disciples, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 young women who gathered with their families and all their relatives to be part of a celebration of marriage. Marriage, like the kingdom of God, was not about two, one or two people at the altar. So that is what we do today. The couple's parents don't even have to be there right? It's just the two of you in the forest in love, right? Or you can have an adventure, destination wedding, and go somewhere amazing. Or you can just get in front of a judge and post something on Facebook that the deed is done, right? In ancient Palestine, 
We don't really know what the ritual was like. But we have a general idea. First of all, all your relatives turned out, as in all your relatives. And if you lived in a village, this pretty much could mean the whole village. If you had two, it could also be sizable village groups from neighboring villages, because all your relatives would come on the bride's side and all the relatives would come on the groom's side. Because it wasn't two individuals getting married. It was two families uniting. And so two whole communities uniting. And the party was to get everyone together because everybody participated. The ceremony took place at the bride's father's house. And that means people packed in. And the groom would come to the bride's house with an escort, as in an escort, his father, his relatives. Sometime came, there was a period of betrothal sometimes next. So sometimes the marriage was immediate, and then very soon the bride would go to the husband's house as soon as the husband's house was ready. Um, but, uh, but there could also be a marriage where uh, before they actually lived together as husband and wife. And of course, we hear about that kind of marriage in our, we- in our Christmas stories, right? Because Mary and Joseph had that kind of betrothal. Um, So the groom's family would build a house for him, which would be right next to his dad's house or like right in the family compound. And then the groom would go back to collect the bride when the time was right. And this was yet another group of relatives in this great procession, high, fun, amazing, wonderful thing. They'd all go over to the next village or two two doors over if she happened to live close by. Actually, that'd be a little close. Although... First cousin marriage was pretty awesome, so it might have been, I don't know. Anyway, they go to the bride's house and collect her. Uh, and then the procession would go back to the father's, the, the groom's new house with all her relatives as well. So you, can you imagine, this is like, this is a big deal. Uh, it's not what happens now, right? Yeah, we don't really see wedding processions through our streets, do we? No. Wouldn't it be fun, though? I mean, I'm totally into it now that I read all this. Okay, so... This is a really festive day, and the point is, as we start likening this to what Jesus is likening it to, which is the kingdom of God, no one was left out. So Jesus sets this story in this context. The father of the groom gathers the groom and his entourage. Off they go to the bride, bring her back to the new home. Um, And sometimes this could take a little time because there's a journey involved, right? So it might be that you expect them, oh, a little bit after the sun sets, we should be back, but it takes a little longer than that because they've got to get the donkeys all in order. And oh my gosh, the goats that are part of the dowry, three of them ran off. And so they had to send the boy cousins out to get the goats in order to get them back, in order to tie them to the back of the donkeys so that the whole procession could... This is not time like now where it's like, it's three o'clock. They, they didn't do that. This is different. So it's going to be dark when they get there, where they know that ahead of time, and so the torches are ready because the relatives who stayed behind, it's their job to open up and welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And this is where the trouble of the story starts. Of the ten young women, we are told that five of them were wise and the other five were foolish. When the night hours begin to get long, some of the young women fall asleep and they are woken with the cry from waiting relatives, the groom is coming. 
They are supposed to get everything lit up so that everyone can see okay in the dark. And besides, everything should look really festive, right? We got a festival. And glitch, some of the young women have run out of oil. They did not think ahead of the possibility there could be a delay. Oops. And they noticed that some of the other young women were smart enough to bring extra, and so they have plenty of oil. So they asked, give us some of your oil because our lamps have gone out. Everybody wants to be part of the party and take part in the celebration, which joins all these relatives together and forms and strengthens community. And somehow these ones just got shut out. The groom came and everybody shouted and surrounded the couple and into the house they all went while the foolish young women rushed to the oil cellar to get more oil. And when they came back, the door was shut. The moment had passed. Their lapse in protocol cost them a place inside the community to celebrate. Lord, Lord, they say, open the door for us. Remember just last week, what was it? Knock, ask. Seek, knock, and the door will be open for you. But the groom replies, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. And that is the end of the story. The gospel writer Matthew adds a line to help his hearers interpret the story much later. He adds, therefore, keep alert because you don't know the day or the hour. So, okay, like Lee so well said, what on earth does that all mean? And of course, the truth is, right, all these stories and all these parables, that the truth isn't one thread, is it? There's a whole tapestry of truth here. So when you jump into a parable and you try to understand, the first part to remember is that parables are set in the real world. This is not an allegory. This is a story about a real wedding in Pal Palestine. And Jesus is using the real details of the wedding to talk about humanity and to talk about God. So the context of the wedding matters. The stories also have a way of calling us to attention because they can seem shocking. Like we have a different outcome that we expected or it doesn't seem right. And the hearers would know what should have happened. And so when they hear what happened instead, it's shocking to them. We sometimes are so far removed from that context that it doesn't shock us. We just think, oh, God's telling us to do this. God's telling us to shut the young women who don't have oil out of our houses and don't let them be part of our celebrations. Oh, interesting. Maybe not so much. So, there are a lot of commentaries and commenters on parables, including this one. And this one has a favorite interpretation, uh, which says that, uh, so after Jesus was crucified, people believed that Jesus would be back any minute. It's called the parousia. That's the fancy Greek word for it. And he's like, tomorrow, right now. Ooh, he's under the podium. <laughs> yes, he's back. They really believed Jesus was coming back now. Paul preached that throughout Asia and Greece. Uh, the people in the Jerusalem church lived in community. That's where we get a lot of our uh, rules about celibacy and all these things because Jesus was supposed to be coming back right in your lifetime and you wanted to be ready. And so this parable gets used hundreds of years later to explain why Jesus hasn't come back yet. And we get this new layer of meaning, mind your P's and Q's while Jesus is gone, or you won't get to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And that becomes an established, how many have heard that as the, as the tradition? Yeah, well, I mean, there's threads of truth in there, of course. 
Um, and there's nothing wrong with that interpretation, right? Because it's a tapestry. So now that we already know that one, I want to pull a different thread. Um, so the weight becomes an act of duty and endurance rather than active anticipation, right? Judgment starts to seep in, as it always does, about who is doing the right thing and who is not. And clearly, these young women deserved the lesson that they got. Jesus isn't back yet. It's got to be somebody's fault. Yet I am skeptical when we humans decide that a story or a lesson tells us that God excludes anyone. Because exclusion is consistent with what humans in these stories do, but it is not consistent with what Jesus does in these stories, and not at all consistent with Jesus' death on the cross, an act that literally shakes creation to the core and releases the souls bound up in death. Jesus unleashes not condemnation from the cross, but grace and salvation. Jesus calls us to be a community, not of exclusion and death, but of life. So when you go to your teacher because you don't have the hat, I loved, I loved what Lee did with that, right? What do you receive? Right? We all know the answer to that question. But waiting is hard, and we have been waiting a hard, long time, and it's hard not to blame somebody for that. And I absolutely love how bored this young woman looks. <laughs> we have to do something to fill in the time. We are people who have time, and we can fill it frivolously and not be ready, or we can be mindful that every single moment of every single day that we have been given is a moment to serve Christ. So we stay active or we get lazy. We start to make up rules. Whose fault it is that Jesus didn't come back yet? Whose fault it is that there are earthquakes, right? Usually it's the gays or because women somehow. That's why. We do this in our small communities and our churches too. The fire and the spirit can leave our churches and what we can be left with isn't true community the community that literally waits for the bridegroom to arrive with anticipation and good work. Where many churches find themselves is something Scott Heck referred to long ago as pseudo-community. Pseudo means fake or pretend or false. Now, pseudo-community isn't necessarily bad, right? Anyone who drives a car depends on pseudo-community every day. <laughs> we don't have to know each other. We don't have to like each other. But we have to get along and drive straight and not make waves, right? Nobody panic. Jesus isn't coming back today. Just stay in your lane. So some of these rules and rituals that have developed, they help us. In the best case, these rituals are kind of a formalism that is used to express beauty. But much more often, overwhelmingly often, the elaborate rules that pseudo-communities develop are meant to keep people inside comfortable and in their place. They're used to prevent too many questions, to keep everybody in line, and to exclude the people you don't like. So here's an interesting factoid. In the Middle Ages, children of the wealthy had private education with private tutors. And you know what subject they spent hours and hours and hours and hours studying every week? Dance. 
right? We still have this formalism baked into our culture. Dancers can form tight, true community with each other, and ballet is meant to be shared. But in the Middle Ages, the social practice of dance itself was designed to exclude. The dances the children had to learn were very intricate and elaborate social interactions. In order to belong, you had to know how to dance. You had to know the steps exactly, or you were definitely going to bump into somebody and at best embarrass yourself and at worst become a doofusy outsider. Your ability to dance was your ticket to prove you belonged in good community. Not only were you taught the dance, but you had to navigate acceptable social nuances as you danced, like how and when to make eye contact, and for how long, and when to smile and nod, and not to slight anybody important. Darn it, but Christians have learned pseudo-community really well. Pseudo-community keeps us busy and prevents real community from forming. Anyone interested in true Christian revival or renewal has to interrupt. Wesley's small groups are designed to break apart class structures and bring us back to the gospel of the worship of equals. Mission trips can also break down pseudo-community. When you are helping somebody clean out their home and their walls are six feet deep in mud and muck and residue, you have to push through fakery to get there. Or like an AA program, which is very like Wesleyan small groups. When Nadia Bolsweber was here last week, she, speaks, she spoke plainly about when you're facing something so destructive and harmful as addiction in your life, you simply cannot rest in pseudo-community. You have to reach deeper. You have to reach for the truth, and you have to reach for God. Christians today, we need to tell the truth about our stuckness. We are stuck in pseudo-community. Pseudo-community is transactional community. The butler has their role, as does the maid, as does the father of the bride, and don't you dare step out of it. Pseudo-community is cliques and gossip and church politics. Pseudo-community is justifying your own comfort at the expense of others. Pseudo-community is judging someone based on their clothing or their class, or whether or not they're in the inner out group. Pseudo-community is judging someone based on their immigration status, skin color, ethnicity, and whether or not they have a body and soul worth saving. Pseudo-community is don't ask, don't tell. In the military and in the church, too. Christians today, we need to tell the truth about this. We need a come-to-Jesus moment. We did not get one of those in St. Louis at the specially called General Conference just a few weeks ago. But we, each of us in our churches, each of us right now, right here in Ashland, seeking hand to hand, we can, we will, we are building the church that we seek. The book of Acts chapters two and four tells us outright that true community holds everything in common. In true community, we don't just hold things in common. We hold each other in common, included and as equals, because our well-being matters. We do not leave anyone hungry, but all are invited 
to the table. And no one returns home with nothing to feed their children. We humans get it wrong and wrong and wrong. But the difference when you are Christian is that your goal, your goal is to get it right. And that is the work that you do every day. I want to return to wrap up to the parable story we read today, the story of the 10 young women and the wedding celebration. Everybody wants this story to have a nice, tidy bow, just in general, the Bible. We want it to have a nice, tidy bow. But we know from the work that we have done over the last six months on Sunday mornings talking about parables that parables are messy. Jesus does not tell these stories to put a bow on anything and certainly not to affirm pseudo-community. Jesus is trying to get our attention and shake things up. We are in danger of our salvation and we need to listen up. So I'm going to suggest a new way to look at this parable other than the way the church fathers suggested. So in the story of the publican and the tax collector, there is this very wealthy, very fine man who comes to the temple and says, oh Lord, thank you for making me who I am. I'm so great. And I know you can tell because I have all these great things you've given me. Thank you. And off he goes. Then the tax collector sort of calls and skulks in like, oh Lord, I'm such a sinner. I'm sorry. Help me. I'm caught in all this yucky stuff. Now, everybody listening to that story was all in for the, for the publican. Yeah, yeah, proof that the publican's awesome. Yay! And Jesus says, nope, it's the tax collector that I can work with. I'm going to lift him up. <clears throat> Jesus holds the sinner, the bad example, as the actual example of someone he can work with and someone to bring into the kingdom of God. So commenters forget about this when they talk about Jesus. Pseudo-community is all about staying comfortable and assigning blame, and so commenters want to make blame for why there's no oil and who can do this, and so we have a story of blame. And we forget entirely that this is a story about teenage girls. So this is essentially a slumber party of girls between the ages of 12 and 16. Now, how many of you can attest right here and now in front of God and everybody that in any given group of 10 teenagers, there's going to be some foolish ones? <laughs> right? Why would Jesus tell a whole story that revolved around condemning foolish teenagers? And if any of you is a parent right now of a foolish teenager, don't answer this question. How many of us were foolish teenagers? How many of us were foolish and yet not condemned by God? How many of you are grateful to those who lent you wisdom when you were young so that you should survive your teen years and live to tell the tale? Right? These teenagers who run out of oil and must go in the night to try to get the resources they need, the fresh oil, to keep their torches lit and participate in celebration? Commenters suggest that God would cast such woman, women out into the night, these teenagers, and not answer the door to their cries. 
Does this sound consistent with the stories of Jesus in the gospel? Jesus, who is always reaching to the margins. Jesus, who declares that everybody is welcome at the banquet. Yes, we need to come prepared. Yes, we need to keep our lamps lit. Yes, we need to make sure that we pay attention to how we wait for God and what we get up to. Absolutely. But if we are true community, we do that together with each other, looking out for each other and holding all things in common. The refusal of those to sh- with much, to share with those who had not enough is a great sin, and we see this in the Bible all the time. That sin costs the wedding party, the bride and the groom and their families, the full celebration that was desired. Everybody was invited, and because there was, a, there was a wisdom and foolishness in this tension between who had enough and who didn't, some of them got left out. That is the sin. We are supposed to cross over into heaven hand in hand, all of us. Every beloved one of us. We do this by holding each other in common. My life is bound up with yours. We share this life. My liberation is bound up with yours. We must seek our liberation. My salvation is complete only when we are saved together as one beloved community equals together for now, for eternity, before God. Amen.